an ironic media production. Visit us at ironickmedia.com. The biggest concern I see today with women struggling with sleep is not enough focus on our rhythms. These are words from Jessica Drummond, who's my guest today, and she explains in great detail about this on this episode. Dr. Jessica Drummond is the founder and CEO of the Integrative Women's Health Institute and the author of Outsmart Endometriosis. She's passionate about caring for and empowering women who are struggling with pain and inflammatory conditions. Dr. Drummond has two decades of clinical experience as a licensed physical therapist, clinical nutritionist and board certified health coach working with women with pelvic pain, including endometriosis, vulvodynia and bladder pain syndrome. She brings a unique approach to women to overcome hormonal imbalances. She's a sought-after speaker and she works with fertility, optimal hormonal health, menopause and female athlete nutrition. She lives and works from her home in Connecticut, Fairfield, Houston, reaching thousands of clients and professional students in over 60 countries through her virtual practice. Today, Jessica talks about the intersection between women's hormones and sleep and how they impact each other. How do women's hormones impact sleep and how does poor sleep play out on women's hormones? So if you are a woman and if you are struggling with hormonal challenges and poor sleep, take a listen and be sure to have a pen ready because there's tons of information to take away from this episode. Welcome to the Sleep Whisperer podcast. I'm your host, Deepa. Join me and my many expert guests and medical professionals from the cutting-edge science of functional medicine of the West and ancient wisdom of the East. Learn all about how to discover your root causes of poor sleep and understand the proper tools and techniques to end your confusion and begin getting a good night's sleep. It's time to regain hope and begin your sleep journey with the Sleep Whisperer Podcast. Welcome to the Sleep Whisperer podcast and I love having conversations with you. You are one of my most exciting interactions always and uh, definitely hormones and sleep is a very big thing today because you hear a lot of women, some of them joke that at certain times of the month I just lose sleep. That's when I'm sitting up in the middle of the night and browsing social media and then there are people who are uh, very frustrated. It can impact mood severely, especially people struggling with anxiety related to hormonal fluctuations. So this is a very important conversation that we are having today and you're the best person to be having it with. But before we go further, let's. I've actually never asked you this because our previous conversations have been pretty short. What actually brought you into this space of focusing on women's health? What was your journey here? Well, hi, thank you so much. I started my career about 20 years ago. I uh, started as a physical therapist and I was, as a kid, I was an athlete and I was good at science. So, you know, basically my guidance counselors or whoever were kind of like, you'd be a good physical therapist. And I was just like, okay, I, you know, I didn't really have a strong passion one way or the other. It, you know, I wanted to work in sports and sports medicine. And I did that for about a year. I was in orthopedics and uh, sports. And then I started to specialize in orthopedic related problems surrounding women's health issues. So shoulder pain related to breast cancer surgery, for example, or women who are pregnant who had back pain. Mm -hmm. And that kind of led me into the world of women's health physical therapy, which is really just a specialized orthopedic physical therapy 
around women's health issues. So things like bladder prolapses or rectocele or like pelvic pain, lymphedema, things related to cancer. And so I really enjoyed that. Uh, and also female athletes, because, you know, and I've actually done a lot more work of that even later in the sense that, you know, the training is different, uh, you know, thinking about things like female athlete triad, which is now called relative energy deficiency in sport or reds, you know, thinking about overtraining, undernourishing, stress fractures, setting people up for osteoporosis. So I was very interested in this entire field, especially because uh, my like third job, so I started in sports medicine, then I worked for a couple of years in a very intense um, county hospital situation, which was great because you learn everything <laughs> and see everything. Uh, it's a very intense environment, but there's a lot to, going on. And then I worked in a specialty women's hospital where, you know, lots of delivering babies and moms on bed rest for high risk pregnancy and lots of very detailed kind of women's health challenges. And I really enjoyed that. And then I, my oldest daughter was born in 2003. And after that, I had my own postpartum kind of hormonal crash. I had a great pregnancy. I worked till basically the end and I had preterm labor for a couple of weeks, but, and she was born a you know, a few weeks early, she was still considered full term. And I had an easy delivery. But after that, my hormones just crashed and I had a history. So this was looking back much later, I realized that probably what happened to me was a reactivation of the Epstein-Barr virus because I had mm. a history of having mono a couple of times. So I was really pretty, you know, I was like sick, but I didn't know I was sick. I thought I was just fatigued and the doctors were like, oh, this is just what it feels like to be postpartum, you know. A which, new mommy. Yeah, you're just tired, da, da, da. But I had over the next four years, I had really worsening anxiety and intense fatigue and insomnia and I was getting sick all the time and it was just a very rough transition to motherhood. And eventually that's how I found functional medicine. And it really helped me to take a nutrition approach to healing. And, you know, that's when I started to add in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, and eventually went back and got a doctorate in clinical nutrition and focused my work there, the research that I did at the time and things like that on complex pelvic pain, because you know, I realized when I had hormonal issues that if I could apply that to my patients with um, challenging and sort of resistant pelvic pain conditions, that potentially that could be helpful. And I, I found that it was clinically. So I've, I've published a few case studies in that area, but mostly thinking about how to bring this wide lens to the work of women's health in general and, and in terms of our clinical practice most of that is focused in complex pelvic pain. So when you say that you struggled after your daughter was born, did you have challenges with sleep? Did you struggle to sleep? I did. I was very fatigued. Well, it's, it first started with the fact that she didn't sleep. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'm sure she did sleep, but it didn't yeah. feel like it to me. Before she was born, I was a great sleeper. I used to sleep for like 10 hours, you know. The beginning part was just normal. She was just nursing and that kind of stuff. But uh, we were also the first like parents among our friends. So we would mm. try to take her out with us. Like we didn't have like a sleep schedule or anything. We were like, oh, this baby's very portable. We can take her out. And da, da, da. But so we, it, it's entirely our fault that <laughs> she didn't sleep well. And then it, it became the fact that I was so sick that it was hard for me to fall asleep. And sometimes I would fall asleep well, like there were, then I started kind of using all my tools, right? I was exercising hard to try to get myself to fall asleep because this was before I knew much about nutrition. So I was yeah. using the PT mindset of just exercise harder, you know, and I would fall asleep well, but I would wake up in the middle of the night with intense panic attacks in the yeah. middle of a sound sleep. And then I couldn't go back to sleep. So I was only getting like good 
maybe four hours of sleep. And then I had to get up and go to work. It was a combination of both intense fatigue and insomnia and panic attacks. And that was rough. That was several years of terrible sleep. So do you feel that one thing is, of course, as a new mommy, schedule is all over the place and then you're dependent on when your baby falls asleep. But do you feel there's also a hormone link there that what happens within the body with hormones post-birthing and uh, does that cause the impact or is it just simply that women stop sleeping because now they need to be thinking about their baby? I think it depends on the situation Um, because with my second daughter, I slept fine, but I had a lot of help. I changed how I approached that postpartum period. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I could sleep the first two weeks after my second daughter was born. I had a night nurse, which is by the way, the best money I've ever spent on anything. (laughs) (laughs) If you have the opportunity to have someone help you in your house for a couple of weeks, So she, I would go to sleep and she would, you know, take care of the baby and stay up and watch her. And we did that actually because my second one had some breathing issues in the hospital and we had to like be really monitoring her. And I knew that that would just wear me out. So she was with her. And then whenever she had to eat, she'd just bring her to me. And then I gave her back to her and I'd go back to sleep. So it's both. I definitely think the schedule changes moms. I think in the very early beginning, like the first three months, there's definitely hormonal changes. But the thing that I see in my practice is that people then they don't they don't have any support at night, you know, whether it's from family or uh, a night nurse or a postpartum doula. The other problem is when they wake up, they do other things. So instead of just like, get up, feed the baby, put the baby back to sleep, go to bed, they get up, feed the baby, scroll social media, media. you know, so you like turn on the blue light, then changes the melatonin production or the baby doesn't fall right back to sleep. So mom's like walking around outside. So it it depends, you know, in a postpartum mom and baby dyad of, you know, three to six months, it's a combination of factors. The baby could have reflux. The baby could have, you know, be off on their sleep schedule. So it can be a more related to hormones, but it's sometimes related to the sleep schedule. And a lot of times it's related to behavioral things that we can actually improve. Okay. I want to spend some time on a woman's cycle. So talk us through, let's just say, I'm not talking about new mummies, but just a woman's cycle. So let's go through those four phases, follicular, ovulatory, luteal, menstrual. How does sleep alter in those four cycles and how can fluctuating hormones or hormones that are not in a state of equilibrium be a root cause of poor sleep? So how does it look if progesterone, estrogen, they are behind your lack of ability to sleep? So just walk us through all those four phases. Where can women actually lose sleep typically? Does it look different woman to woman? What are, how can somebody actually recognize what's going on with hormones when they're having poor sleep? Well, let's start with the menstrual phase. So day one is when you start bleeding. And at that point, the hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone are at very low levels. So for some women, early menstruation can have problems with sleep disruption. When estrogen is low you have less insulin sensitivity, more insulin resistance. Hmm. So you're going to be a lot more sensitive to sugar and grains, things like that, foods that are high in carbohydrates. And so this is a time to really tighten up blood sugar, but it's challenging because this is also the time you have sugar cravings. (laughs) So the times that you most crave sugar during your cycle is the times that you shouldn't eat sugar. And so that will really impact sleep, especially in early menstruation. Then around day three to five, estrogen and progesterone levels begin to rise. Now, progesterone is a sleep enhancing hormone. 
So that's more important in the luteal phase, but it still plays a role in follicular phase. So before ovulation, though those like week and a half before ovulation as the menstrual period is ending and you know you're in the follicular phase, that's when estrogen and progesterone are most rising and that's easiest time to get the best sleep. You're more insulin sensitive, your progesterone is increasing, testosterone is increasing. It's generally a time when women feel the best. If you don't, if you're struggling in that window, you probably are dealing with either adrenal issues, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal issues, so poor stress resilience, overwork, um, things like blue light exposure, overtraining. You know, it's it's a stress induced problem, or and or it could be a thyroid related issue. So we want to check out those if someone's not sleeping well in the follicular phase. Ovulation is just the peak of that. Same thing, you know, you should have a nice balance. Now, some people get sort of agitated, anxious with elevated estrogen. So elevated estrogen usually gives people good energy and focus and creativity and things like that. But for some women, it's like they're sensitive to a bit too much and it's like almost to a state of agitation or irritation. So when you mean uh, excess, do you mean estrogen dominance or that estrogen is uh, in comparison to progesterone or is it that you need higher levels of estrogen to not feel that way? Some women are sensitive to high estrogen. So that could be just flat out high estrogen. Like the levels overall could be too high or it could be too high relative to progesterone. So it could be estrogen dominance where it's not actually too high in and of itself, but compared to progesterone, it's too high. And other times it's just too high. So if it's just too high, you could be dealing with a metabolism issue at the liver or, uh, and if it's more um, exogenous estrogen, so like chemical estrogen exposures, like either hormones or excessive exposure to plastics or things like that, then you also want to look at that. So reducing exposure, but also looking at metabolism in the gut because the gut bacteria metabolize exogenous estrogen. So maybe not eating enough fiber, maybe needing some probiotics, things like that. Um, And then sometimes progesterone is just too low and that's going to be most um, apparent in the luteal phase. So ovulation. So first of all, depending on where you are in your cycle or whatever else is going on in your hormones, women may be having an anovulatory cycle. If you don't ovulate, you're not going to have that nice giant boost of high progesterone, which we need in the luteal phase. And that's a very calming hormone. So ovulation is the key trigger for that. And if you don't have that in the luteal phase, if you're not feeling more calm and connected, it's probably an issue of either having an anovulatory cycle or having an ovulatory cycle and still having low progesterone. Uh, One of the common things that I notice with women is that when I ask them about ovulation, they don't know if they've ovulated or not. So how can a woman actually know that she's had an ovulatory cycle that month? So there's a couple of things you can do. You can be tracking your cycle. So you can use the fertility awareness method. Um, My favorite teacher of that, her name is Lisa. Hendrickson Jack. She wrote a book called um, The Fifth Vital Sign about the menstrual Mm. cycle. So you can track, you can learn how to track your cycles to see if and when you're ovulating using temperature and cervical mucus, things like that. Or you can actually, at least in the US, I know you can buy sticks at the drugstore and just pee on them and see if you've ovulated or not. So (laughs) (laughs) that's an option. So those are probably the two ways to, it's really great. Like I'm in perimenopause now, I'm 46 years old, but starting with my younger clients, you know, as early as puberty or like a little later, like when the menstrual cycle starts to regulate, I think teaching girls and young women fertility awareness method is really important just to for have them let, you know, even if they don't use it for birth control or don't use it for fertility, 
it's a great awareness of, are you ovulating? Are your cycles right. regular? What knocks your cycles off? You know, if you feel moody, why is that? When is that? So that's a great way to just really get to know your body. And uh, it's also common to lose sleep with raised temperature, body temperature. So I'm not just talking about hot flashes of perimenopause, but some I've also heard that Progesterone can raise core body temperatures, although it calms you down. Sometimes it can prevent falling asleep because the body temperature goes up and for sleep, you need the core body temperature to drop. So mm -hmm. do you have, have you ever found any connections between progesterone, body temperature and sleep? That's not something I've really looked at, but it, it would make sense. And the ideal temperature for sleep is 62 degrees Fahrenheit, which I don't know off the top of my head what that is in Celsius, yeah, but yeah. it's it's pretty cold. Having like a room set up, I think a lot of times people don't think about setting up their room for sleep. Darkness, you know, yes. really using darkening shades, coolness, um, the right comfortable pillow, firm bed, not using your room for other things, like not having a television in the room, not working in your bed, you know, creating a space where that's conducive to sleep. So I think that's a valuable point. And I, in terms of the progesterone changing body temperature, but also being aware that you might have to make your room colder to really create optimal sleep conditions. Why I asked you that, Jessica, was a lot of women actually talk about how if their husband has a conditioner on or the room is too cold, they're actually shivering and they need two, three blankets to cover them. I find that women have a great intolerance to cold and so they're bundling themselves up in and making themselves increasingly warm. And mm. why do you think they do that? In that case, if it's more of a cold intolerance, that is generally a thyroid issue. Mm. Um, so that's, and anytime I see a thyroid issue, I always back it up to adrenal health. Elevated cortisol is going to inhibit thyroid hormone function. So it could be a pure problem with the thyroid. It could, it's most often, at least in the Western world, a autoimmune issue with the thyroid, if it is a, a more of a thyroid issue. But in most cases, underlying a thyroid issue is a stress resilience issue. So hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal, that entire axis can be off. And usually it starts in the brain. So there's brain inflammation or low iron or low nutrient absorption or you know, things like that, neurotransmitter imbalances, keeping people really stressed and upregulated all the time. So really kind of backing it up to root causes, almost always when it comes to sleep goes back to stress resilience. Right. And yeah, I think stress so. is not given enough priority globally. And for sure that I've noticed a lot of times here that uh, when you said in the US it's autoimmune, it's the same everywhere. So the, the, there's autoimmune thyroid issues everywhere. But I don't think women give adequate importance to adrenal function, lowering stress. And somehow they're just made to believe that if they take their thyroid medication, it's the magical pill to fix everything. And that's never the case. So they struggle with sleep. They're either sleeping too much and not waking up refreshed, or they're unable to fall asleep. So there's a lot of challenges involving thyroid health. So it's good that you actually um, made uh, the importance of stress within thyroid very clear. But how about the other way around? Now, we've spoken about how hormones can be the root cause of poor sleep, both for falling asleep, staying asleep, quality of sleep. But how about what happens to women's hormones if they're consistently having poor quality sleep and they feel that they're getting away with it, maybe they're, uh, they actually say that I don't need sleep more than a few hours, but that's just because they're 
they've created this boost of adrenaline and it's keeping them buzzing the wired and tired so they feel that sleep is not required so what can poor sleep consistently do to wreck women's hormones well you know it's interesting i think there are some people who can genetically function on less sleep you know or who are there are different patterns if you look at the sleep literature of like night owls and things like that most of the time though i don't think that's the case most of the time i think you're right i think women are i don't need sleep you know i have yeah. too much to do <laughs> they're like if they're saying it like that like i'm fine i have too much to do yeah. blah, 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 yeah. then th that's not true but if they are grounded and they're fine like some people do just need less sleep but what i would say is Anytime there's an issue with hormones, we always back it up to stress resilience, right? Most stress resilience and sleep are very interdependent. If someone has good quality stress resilience, it's going to be easier for them to sleep. If someone is sleeping well, they're going to build up their stress tolerance. Right. So I really, I, I almost think like, okay, we back it up to stress tolerance, then we back it up to sleep optimization. So behind stress tolerance, we need to work on sleep. So this is where we can use all the behavioral factors to improve hormones by starting with improvement of sleep. Now, how do I think about sleep optimization? Well, there are two cycles that during the day, if, if you do the right things, you're going to set your body up for more likely better sleep. So the first is the circadian rhythm. So we want um, melatonin to be high at night and low during the day. So we're not like falling asleep during the day. But to do that, we have to get on a pattern, that circadian rhythm pattern. The brain really likes patterns and consistency. So that is really aligned with two things, sugar and light. Hmm. So when it comes to light, when it's dark outside, we want to be not exposing our eyes and our bodies to blue light. So at the very minimum, whenever it gets dark outside where you live, you want to be wearing amber glasses. These are actually daytime amber glasses. They're just slightly yellow, but yeah. the nighttime amber glasses are even more orange. Daytime amber glasses are good too because you don't want to be overexposed to blue light. It can damage the eyes over time. So you can wear something like this and they have summer yellow, summer actually clear, but they have like a blue light protection. Yeah. Um, the more screens you're exposed to during the day, but especially after it gets dark wherever you live. So, you know, obviously there are seasonal variations in when the sun goes down, but and location variations. But let's say, you know, as a rule of thumb in my practice, I have people turn off all blue light screens or at the very minimum wear the amber glasses by 8 p.m. Because mm. between 10 a.m. and 2, 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. is our four hours of most important recovery sleep. And this also supports a process called brain autophagy. So the brain is like a self-cleaning oven. It actually has a self-cleaning mechanism. And don't forget, all of our hormone axes start in the brain. Right. So mm -hmm. if every night we get deep restorative sleep between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. and then we keep sleeping, we don't want to just wake up then. But a lot of times, you know, women are like, I don't get five minutes to myself until 11 o'clock at night. And then they start and like cleaning the up. house yeah. and like, that's, you know, paying common. the bills. Yeah. yeah. They're like answering all their emails at 11 o'clock at night or, or they're like relaxing, but it's in front of a TV show or, you know, something that's keeping their melatonin pressed. So blue light suppresses melatonin. The other thing that suppresses melatonin is cortisol. Mm. So stress. It's, yeah. So st cortisol is the stress buffering hormone, adrenal, you know, adrenal hormone that we want to keep it low at night. It's okay for there to be a little surge of cortisol in the morning to kind of get you up, da, da, da. but like, you know, after about nine in the morning, that level should be coming pretty low so that by, by bedtime, it's really low. But if you're stressed at night, the other thing that messes with cortisol is sugar because- right. 
if you have, let's say you eat an a reasonable dinner at five o'clock or whatever, six o'clock. But then after that, or during that, you have like two glasses of wine or a bowl of ice cream or something like that. You've raised your blood sugar really fast. Yeah. And insulin comes in to save your life and take all that sugar out of your blood, bring it into your cells. But usually it overcorrects if you have a big burst of sugar like that. And so by, you know, 10, 11 o'clock, you're getting this cortisol surge to bring your blood sugar back into the right range. So cortisol inhibits melatonin. So now you're getting this second wind at like 10 o'clock at night. Then you turn on the TV, you start cleaning your house, you start scrolling social media, you start paying your bills. And by the time you go to bed, it's like midnight or one o'clock in the morning and you've missed some of your brain healing and adrenal healing window and you're you've messed up your circadian rhythm so you either need melatonin support supplementally or you know things like that so that's the the first curve we have to be aware of the second curve is around adenosine so adenosine is a chemical that's released when you essentially burn chemical energy chemical energy is called atp adenosine triphosphate right yeah. During the day, you're supposed to burn off your ATP. You're supposed to be mentally working and like exercising and gardening and doing whatever. And when you do that, your body builds up adenosine and adenosine binds to receptors that support sleep. So if during the day you're not active enough, you may have trouble falling asleep as well, which is why sometimes like what I was doing with like swimming really hard, like, you know, after work can help, but you have to do all of these things, right? You can't just like burn out the system every day and hope to sleep well through the night. Now that works pretty well in kids who have nice balanced hormones. You want them just running around <laughs> as much as possible, but in, you know, in perimenopause or postpartum, you also have to think a little in a little bit more of a nuanced way about also nourishing your stress resilience and keeping that melatonin circadian rhythm well nourished as well. You spoke about pattern, Jessica. Common thing that I find is with women who they have to wake up a little early during the week to get the kids ready off to school, then off to work. So when it comes to the weekend, they're actually really altering their patterns so they mm. are sleeping much later then waking up much later and feeling that they've had more sleep than they get on the weekdays but so does that altering pattern between weekdays and weekend does that also cause impact should they ideally be trying to maintain a constant rhythm or at least some kind of regularity to that rhythm yeah, the closest you can get to a consistent bedtime and wake up time, weekday or weekend, that's ideal. Uh, however, I would say that for people who aren't getting enough sleep during the week, because you really can't, like even if you put all these things into place, you just have too much going on. You haven't had time to right. take enough things off your plate. You have to get up too early. You've got all these things to get your kids off to school. You're working. You've got a long commute. You know, different people have different situations. You might be a single parent. You might right. be financially struggling, whatever it might be. In that case, there is some benefit to getting like a little extra sleep on the weekend. You can resolve some sleep debt, you know, not great. It's not ideal to like <laughs> store it all up and just sleep all weekend. But let's say, you know, you normally go to bed at 10 o'clock and you have to get up at like five to get everything filled up in your day. But on the weekend, you sleep till seven or eight in the morning. You know, that's probably not going to mess oh, you up. Oh, that's fine. I think mm -hmm. what I was asking you is more about, let's say they're going to bed at 10 p.m. on weekdays and then they're flipping that to 1 a.m. every weekend. Mm. So I was asking you about that, that when that going to bed looks very, very different between weekdays and weekends. No, I, that's where you can try to keep that under control. Yeah. So. During the week, if you're going to bed at 10 o'clock, you know, maybe you might stay up on a weekend night every once in a while till 11 or midnight, but don't make that a pattern. 
Thanks. Going to bed at roughly the same time is really nourishing for the brain and the circadian rhythm. And then if you can sleep until you just wake up, that's fine. The other thing that I have my students do, and I strongly recommend to my clients is once a year, twice a year, or quarterly, as much as you think you can. <laughs> <laughs> my, my friend and colleague, Dr. Alan Christensen coined a term called the sleepcation. And I believe, and I don't know this for sure, but there, I think it's based on some camping literature that I, you know, if not, then the reason I use it is because of this camping literature. So it was found that if people go camping with no devices, you know, no screens, no phone access, things like that for three days, their circadian rhythm will return to more mm, optimal. Very interesting. Yeah. And so if you just kind of leave the city lights and your screens and your televisions and you just go in the woods for a few days, you can fix that circadian rhythm. So do you do that? Actually leave even your phone and go away? What I do is adapt it to modern life. And I don't necessarily say that people have to go camping, but I, they can stay in their house if they want to. Exactly. But they spend three days without screens, just resting. Including can, calls, including the phone? Ideally, yeah. yeah. So as much as possible, no televisions, no laptops, no phones for three days, which is mm. really cha more challenging than it sounds. And, it is. And then you do nothing but like read books and take walks in the neighborhood and go for a swim and you know, cook and things Spend like that. Spend time with people you love. Yeah. Sit around a campfire, you know, tell stories, whatever. That's great. I'm going to do that very soon. I definitely <laughs> need that. So if you worked with so many women, tell me about if you've seen a woman who's consistently having poor sleep, what do her symptoms typically look like? Well, I mean, it varies a lot, but a lot of times women wake up in the middle of the night. That's something I hear very common and they can't fall back to sleep um, during the day. So what that results in depends mm. on what her challenges are. But a lot of times it's, you know, obviously fatigue, brain fog is huge, pain, actually reduced sleep causes higher levels of pain more than pain actually impacts sleep. So we always think like, oh, I can't sleep because I'm in so much pain, but it's actually the reverse. Sleep impacts pain more than pain impacts sleep. They both impact each other, but yeah. sleep more than. So pain levels will increase, pain intensity will increase, pain frequency will increase. And, you know, I really feel like women struggle with those kind of brain fog, concentration issues, word finding, um, but also just fatigue, irritability, the menstrual cycle gets messed up, stress resilience reduces, um, you know, ability to be productive decreases. So it's, it's very frustrating to yeah. kind of lose that sleep pattern. Now, I know sleep and hormones have this whole bidirectional axis that poor sleep causes hormonal cascade to get messed up and then hormones can impact sleep. But I find personally that when you get into that situation, it's much harder to actually force sleep and work on the hormones rather than maybe bring in food and lifestyle that support hormonal recovery, which then promotes good sleep. So what could somebody eat on a single day, say breakfast, lunch, dinner, which supports hormonal balance and then helps them to sleep better? So I agree with you. I don't usually like just make people go to bed and just try to sleep. Like that's not going to work. You have to yeah. change the daytime activity and health behavior. So getting up in the morning is where this begins. Good sleep starts when you wake up, right? So nice. waking up in the morning and going outside for at least five to 10 minutes to get daylight exposure to the brain, then, you know, kind of get the get this, the, the body moving with a warm drink, some tea, something like that. Having a bowel movement in the morning. We also, the bowel and the brain both yeah. like rhythm hmm. and then breakfast. So ideally you're, you're having a daily like 
approximately a 12 hour fast. Yeah. Um, we can do later fasting as people get more resilient to build immune function, but daily, you know, stop eating at seven, start eating at seven again is a really good pattern to get into or six to six, you know, eight yeah. to eight, something in that range. And so when then having breakfast and breakfast is really important in terms of stabilizing blood sugar. So the breakfast should consist of protein, healthy fi fiber, protein foods that are high in fiber and fat. So mm -hmm. that can look like an egg omelet with vegetables and avocado. It can look like, you know, like a porridge of some kind with nuts and berries, something like um, smoked salmon on a salad. So high in protein, high in fiber, which is mostly going to come from vegetables or things like berries or some whole grains, and then um, a healthy fat. Uh, I love coconut oil, olive oil, avocado. Then lunch and dinner is, is really similar in the sense that we're thinking about protein, fiber, fat. Um, I feel like if someone is going to have something heavier in carbohydrates to do it around lunchtime. So if you're going to have that, you know, bowl of ice cream or you need a little square of dark chocolate or whatever, mm -hmm. have it around lunchtime because you're still active. You're still sort of right. burning the sugar rather than having it after dinner, dessert after dinner messes up sleep. So getting, doing that in the afternoon, if that's something you're craving and then at dinner again, eat a little bit more lightly, lots of fiber, some solid protein, whether that's animal or plant-based protein, depending on how you, what's better for your body and then plenty of fat to nourish that brain recovery as you fall asleep and then stop eating by 7 or 8 p.m. Just like we stop the blue light at 7 or 8 p.m. If we stop eating at 7 or 8 p.m., that really contributes to better sleep as well. So what would you suggest as some plant-based protein options? I would, you know, beans, nuts. Um, I try to stay away from soy for most women. Um, and soy but, is actually used rampantly here. So okay. typically, if somebody is plant-based, then they're relying on soy as a very large part of their protein. And in fact, at one lecture I gave, they were they looked so confused when I had limit soy on my slide. And they said, this is the first time I'm hearing that soy is not great because they are actually eating soy soy two, three times a day. The problem I see with soy is it causes hormonal symptoms in a lot of people. Mm. And it varies. Soy varies genetically in terms of whether or not people can tolerate it because it depends on genetics, but it also depends on the composition of the gut bacteria. So whether or not someone can tolerate soy is more about that person and her physiology and her genetics and her gut bacteria than the soy itself. But the other problem with soy right. is... It, at least in the US, it's almost entirely genetically modified. So that can have an impact on the gut bacteria as well. It's almost entire, you know, it's very hard to get non genetically modified organic soy. So the quality of it is not very good. So those are the things. So I, especially if I have women that have estrogenic symptoms like breast tenderness or headaches or period irregularities or things like that you know, one of the things we take out immediately is soy, but in the U S it's not, I suppose for people who are vegan, it's, it's a food that they'll eat a lot, but most of my clients with, with perimenopausal kinds of issues do better on a, not a plant-based diet. Um, well, plant-based, yeah. but with some animal protein. So everyone does better. Most people do better with mostly plants but having some animal protein, whether it's some eggs, a little bit of fish, poultry, you know, grass-fed yeah. beef. Grass-fed, they did a study in Australia that showed that having three servings of grass-fed beef per week significantly reduced anxiety in women. So, I think and that I, because of the iron? I think it's related to the protein stability. So having a really good uh, absorbable, highly absorbable protein source consistently. Um, but it could be iron, it could be, you know, just nutrient density. You know, there are certainly people I work with that do better with a more fully plant-based 
diet, like a vegan diet, I do find it's harder for women in perimenopause, especially, and sometimes postpartum to maintain a ideal hormone balance without having any animal protein. So you hear the term superfoods a lot today, Jessica, everywhere. So do you actually feel, do you believe in that term superfoods? Do you have uh, some things which you would consider as hormone superfoods and why? why? Why would they be called so? The way I think of a superfood would be a food that's very high, high in nutrient density. Right. So, you know, high in antioxidants, things like berries. Actually, our best superfoods when it comes to antioxidants are herbs and spices. So, mm. you know, oregano, turmeric, um, ginger, garlic, rosemary, thyme, things like this are actually very powerful in antioxidants. And then other superfoods would be quality protein sources, you know, smoked salmon from the cleanest waters you can get, any fish, because fish are very high in omega-3 fatty acids, which a lot of women are depleted in from a brain standpoint. You know, same thing with grass-fed beef, bison, things like that. But, you know, leafy greens are great superfoods because they feed the gut bacteria. So it depends on what you're trying to do. There are different superfoods for uh, different goals. But do you feel that the greens also can become overdone because there is a fad of drinking large uh, green smoothies every single day? Could that become a problem for women's hormones? There's two problems that can happen from that. Having way too much fiber, like over 45 grams of fiber every single day can be problematic for ovulation. So there was a study done called the BioCycle study that looked at healthy young women in their 20s and those that were on very, very high fiber diets. And I do see this occasionally in my practice. Um, Usually women are not getting enough fiber because they're mostly not eating enough salad and, you know, vegetables and stuff. But Every once in a while, like I'll see women who are maybe very either like they do lots of yoga and eat lots of more of a plant-based diet, maybe not entirely vegan, but a very plant-based diet. There are women in my practice who I see that present with that challenge. And that's usually the pattern. It's one common pattern. So having way too much fiber can suppress ovulation. And then the other issue is that Uh, raw leafy greens can cause oxalate buildup. So you can end up with problems like bladder pain or vulvodynia or kidney issues or other pain conditions related to excessive oxalates. You know, I'm not necessarily against green smoothies, but I wouldn't drink like two cups of kale every day. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that is a problem. That's what I've been noticing. And my concern was also the same thing with oxalate and simply because it's a large amount of raw greens that's going in. So Jessica, lots of great information, but there are actually today close to 100 million people with diagnosed sleep conditions. So this is not counting the hundreds of thousands of women who probably have never been to somebody who could diagnose them with an actual sleep disorder. But in your mind, what do you think is the biggest root cause of poor sleep among women? Too much sugar and not enough, including alcohol, too much sugar, including alcohol and not enough focus on our own rhythms, like not enough light exposure and rest. So there's just not a prioritization of sleep and recovery. There's a prioritization of productivity. And I really think that the focus on someone's restorative needs is really hard for women because we always have so much to do. And so instead, we try to rely on things like alcohol and caffeine to keep it going, but it's, it's not a sustainable way to do it. So I have all my guests 
complete a sentence on the Sleep Whisperer podcast, which is if sleep is the new medicine, then. So how would you complete that sentence? Well, if sleep is the new medicine, then playing outside is going to boost that boost the the effectiveness of that new medicine. So as much as possible, being outside, playing outside and getting away from blue screens is the goal for optimizing the effectiveness of that new medicine. Thank you, Jessica. That was a great conversation. I knew when I thought about women's hormones and sleep, there was nobody else who came to my mind except you. There's such wealth of information in this. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for adjusting to my time. So it's not the middle of the night for me and lots of wonderful takeaways for my listeners. So that was great. Thanks so much for having me and I'm happy to get up early for you. I hope you enjoyed the show. Just a reminder that this podcast is for information purposes only. This is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified health professional. This information is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you are looking for personal help, on your health journey do seek out a medical practitioner please do make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with your doctor or otherwise qualified healthcare professional it is in no way intended as medical advice as a substitute for medical counseling or as treatment or cure for any particular health condition be sure to always work directly with a qualified health practitioner before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle that may feel out of your realm of comfort or understanding if you are looking for an allied functional medicine practitioner do seek out more information on www.phytothrive.com or www.sleepwhisperer.pro it is important that you have someone who's qualified and understands your health personally in order to provide adequate care especially when it comes to chronic health conditions. Music